welcome to the Ranting Soccer Dad podcast for May 14th, 2018. I'm your host, Bo Dewar, and I will be interviewing my fellow Virginian. He is one half of the Total Soccer Show. His name is Daryl Grove. He is originally from England. He has been living for quite some time in Richmond, Virginia. And so we talk about his local club. Uh, Well, one of the local clubs, the Richmond Kickers. You may know them as a team in the USL. You may know them as the U.S. Open Cup champions of 1995, which they were. They were the last team to win it before MLS started, before MLS teams were involved. Uh, They were not, of course, the last non-MLS team to win it. That would be the Rochester Rhinos of the then A-League, so which was kind of the same tier as uh, where the Rhinos have played. We talk a little bit about how they've sort of gone uh, back and forth in the tiers of the uh, of the USL. But the interesting thing about them is that they're not just a team, which, frankly, most second division, third division, fourth division, if you want to call them that, a lot of them are, are just kind of a team, and that's it. The Kickers are a fairly substantial youth soccer club that has a professional team sitting on top of it. And they used to have a couple of other teams, too. They used to have a um, sort of a reserve team or a summer amateur team as well, and they used to have a a women's team as well. Uh, Now it's just the, the main pro team and the youth club, and it's all fairly well integrated. You may sign up your kid at age 10 to go play for a low-level or mid-level or elite-level travel team with the Richmond Kickers, and then lo and behold, the coach is one of the players. So it's a pretty neat integrated system. I really don't know of many other clubs that have this. And it boggles my mind. That's one of those things I don't think it gets the play it deserves, in part because the USL doesn't really get the attention it deserves because they're not... They're not really controversial. Well, in some circles they are because they're seen as the the evil tool of the MLS conspiracy because they signed on to a partnership which the NASL uh, under you know several managements ago rejected. And they now allow USL reserve teams in the league, and there are a fair number of those. And some of them are affiliated as well. The kickers actually have an affiliation with DC United where they usually get a few players on loan uh, every year. Uh, You know, they're not owned by DC United in any sense of the imagination, but they do have that player affiliation, which, you know, frankly, that's not that unusual throughout the world. If you look around the world, a lot of the stuff the USL is doing isn't all that strange. Now, I mean, the strange part of the U.S. pyramid, of course, is that it is a closed pyramid. The USL, in its history, has already tried to institute promotion relegation once. It was in the late 90s. I'll, I'll put this in the show notes so you can look it up. It it was complicated. It didn't really work. It, I, I think it was just too soon. I think I think most people would agree with that. And you had clubs that weren't just weren't ready to make the jump up. Um, that was required with promotion. And so more clubs selected their level uh, than had it imposed upon them just because that 
that's what worked. I mean, what happened in the 90s was that you had a lot of teams spring up nationwide. I mean, 80-some sprung up. So, okay, we're professional. And then a few years later, eh, we're not really professional. We can't really do this. And they dropped down to uh, what is now the PDL, which is affiliated with the USL. It's their summer pro league, or no, summer amateur league, mostly college players, which is also true of the NPSL. Boy, this is complicated, isn't it? Don't you wish someone would come in and just simplify all this? Well, I, we don't really talk about it that much. We talk uh, In this conversation, we talk mostly about the kickers and what they do and what they don't do, and uh, talked some about youth soccer and talked some about the state of U.S. soccer as a whole. But yeah, th- this does overlap a bit with what's going on in the news, which is the uh, NASL's continuing legal actions against uh, anybody and everybody. Um, looking at my window now to be sure there's not a process server in my driveway. No? Okay. So I have not yet been sued. Uh, I think everyone else has, though. Uh, the board of U.S. soccer... Um, you know, everyone else at U.S. Soccer. And the NASL is really excited now because MLS has, or U.S. Soccer, I'm sorry. Boy, it really is confusing, isn't it? But U.S. Soccer has decided not to file a motion to dismiss uh, against this lawsuit. They're just going to go ahead and open up Discovery. And NASL is really excited about this. And frankly, so are some of the people on Big Soccer who utterly hate the NASL, some of the people who've been cheering its demise, um, the analogy I saw was that instead of, they're going to lance the boil instead of picking at it. That was the analogy used. Um, because, you know, the thinking, even among people who really dislike the NASL, is that there may be some parts of the MLS Soccer United marketing relationship that don't meet best practices. And perhaps it's best to go ahead and address those. Now, that that doesn't mean that the NASL is suddenly worth saving. And I, I hesitate to make a proclamation about the future of the NASL because I, I consider myself first and foremost a reporter or, you know, a journalist, an analyst. I, I don't like to think of myself as a pundit. And we're going to go into this a bit more in a little bit. I have another guest lined up pretty soon, so we will be talking about the NASL and other issues that are coming up, but this conversation doesn't really get into all that. It's just coincidence, frankly, uh, that I wind up this conversation about the USL's, I would say, one of their cornerstones, the, the Richmond Kickers. They've been around for so long, and they've been fairly stable. We do talk a bit about promotion and relegation and how that would affect uh, the kickers and whether, you know, if they had a great season all of a sudden, could they move up to Division One? It's the same question that comes up with a lot of, say, MPSL clubs. You know, if, all right, you want promotion and relegation? Okay, well, if you, if you won your division, would you be ready to play a 10-month season and uh, pay your players? next season? In a lot of cases, the answer is no. That's something we have to take into account. So 
again, I mean, we say we want, I would certainly like to see a lot of things simplified, but then again, there are reasons why a lot of this has evolved this way. And a lot of it is that we've been trying to play catch up. Um, and a lot of it is that some things have just kind of failed. You've, you've had a rash of over exuberance and then things collapse. And that's what happened to a lot of the original USISL or a lot of the USISL from the 80s or 90s. Uh, those teams are mostly gone. You know, the kickers are a rare exception to that. And I do worry that it could happen elsewhere. So this podcast, though, is going to be about what's gone mostly right, which is, again, an integrated club that has um, a giant youth soccer organization. You can hardly escape the kickers in Richmond. And on top of that, a pro team that's been playing at a pretty high level for a few decades. And it's fun to talk about it with Daryl Grove, who is co-host, again, of one of the a fun and informative podcast, Total Soccer Show. You've, if you follow soccer at all, you've probably heard of them. Uh, please do check them out. And I've got uh, one of their recent ones that I really enjoyed linked up in the show notes. So here's a conversation with Daryl Grove. now with Daryl Grove, who is the co-host of one of the most entertaining uh, soccer podcasts other than Ranting Soccer Dad, the Total <laughs> Soccer Show, uh, joining me from down the interstate in Richmond, Virginia. How are you today? I'm good, Bo. Where, where exactly are you? I am Vienna, Virginia. Uh, oh, so nice. I am right. about 12 miles outside uh, D.C. due west. Uh, so I actually have, my kids have played in the tournament down there. I'm not in one of those leagues that play uh, league games down there, but uh, yeah, they're, we've played at Strikers Park, unfortunately. We haven't oh, played yeah, any kickers. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, as we can tell by the accent, uh, I don't think you're originally from Richmond, Virginia, uh, so <laughs> can you give us a little bit of background? Oh yeah, so I'm from England. I'm from the West Midlands, just outside uh, Birmingham, but I've been here in Richmond since 2005. And so, naturally, when you're looking at a place to move in the U.S., you must have must have been looking specifically uh, for a uh, soccer program that had uh, a pro team on down through youth. And so, uh, of course, you picked Richmond because of the Richmond Kickers. Is that right? You would think, right? But it was just because my wife had a friend here, and we visited and sort of took a gamble on the town. And it's sort of a happy accident for me that the kickers are here, that there's a really great adult soccer league, and there's a really great soccer culture here. So I really stumbled into it, but I'm really grateful for it. And the uh, the last Open Cup champions before – well, you, you would have missed it, but the last Open Cup champions before uh, MLS came in and, and won all but one of the last 20-some years – yeah, uh, so, the 95 Open Cup. I've actually, um, U.S. Soccer, I think somebody went and found a VHS tape and digitized it somehow. So I recently got to watch the footage of the kickers winning winning the U.S. Open Cup with um, current head coach Lee Cavishaw getting to the end line and cutting it back. I, I remember him as a player uh, because I was a Carolina Dynamo fan in those days. And, uh, okay. So that was that was a that was a rivalry at that 
at that time. But uh, the, the Dynamo retrenched in the uh, BDL, and the kickers have kind of bounced around. The, for a while, they they weren't quite sure if they wanted to be sort of at the PDL level or the D3 level or the D2 level. Yeah. Uh, but they, they've settled in for a nice, stable run. So um, I guess what – what were your first impressions of the kickers when you when you came in and, and said, "Hey, my my new town in my new country uh, has a team I can go see." So first impressions were I was I was really confused because everything here was new to me. I didn't really understand how Major League Soccer worked. I didn't understand um, the whole you know no pro rel situation. So I didn't understand what the USL was. And at the time, I, I'm I'm struggling with the exact timeline, but it was a time when USL was really. Um, changing its name and changing its setup. And I remember the kickers being in USL D2. There's USL D2 and D1 for a little while. So I'm sort of, I'm I'm really happy now that um, whatever else is going on in American soccer, at least USL seems to have settled on being the USL. Well, until they build their new uh, mega stadium in Chicago, that is. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I genuinely yeah, don't know what's going on there. Uh, 20,000 seats something like that for a stadium in Chicago. And, uh, but the rumor, yeah, the, the rumor seems to be that they will take over the MLS franchise or in some way, because it, it's really odd to build a 20,000-seat USL franchise in a town that already has an MLS, MLS franchise, right? One would think. <laughs> so we don't know. So it's been uh, as as well-reported as some things are in the in U.S. soccer. That still seems rather shrouded in, in, yeah. in mystery. So... Uh, then, so over the time you've been following the kickers, well, one major change is the um, the MLS reserves uh, came in, and yeah. they also and the kickers the, the kickers always had a pretty good relationship with DC United, but I believe it became more formal uh, in that time. And so you typically have three or four players on loan from DC United now. Yeah, I think that I think it's I think it's four or five, but it tends to be maybe three that really stick around. If that makes sense, sometimes there'll be right. players that will just turn up for a couple of games, uh, but then there's usually a core of players who who stick around through the entire season. And I've got to say, it's been a really odd relationship. Um, so I know this is a, it's quite a common relationship in the USL. If people don't understand, it's um, an affiliate relationship where. DC does not in any way own the Richmond Kickers, but they have this relationship where they'll send four or five players on loan um, at one time every season. Um, but to me, it's been a really odd situation because it's great for the Kickers because they get four or five Major League Soccer quality players. They don't have to pay their salary, so you essentially get in free players. Um, but mm-hmm. it adds a sort of um, unpredictability to your roster, right? And there are these guys who could only be here for a month or they could be here all season or they could be here for a day. Um, I can remember last season, we the kickers were. I was doing the play-by-play, so I was really seeing every game and seeing behind the scenes a little bit. Um, kickers often struggled uh, for depth at fullback, and Jalen Robinson would come down, and he'd be mm-hmm. in a you know like a tracksuit, but he would just be watching the game, and then he wouldn't be on the match day roster, and then he'd sort of get in his car and go home afterwards. Um, so it was this weird thing where he was half on loan but wasn't really expected to play. I guess if if they'd had a couple of injuries on the back line, could they have thrown him in to the next game or something, or was it just what was, he was just observing, really? Yeah, it, it, it seemed it seemed to be that, and it, it, I think he was in a weird situation because he was 
so close to the DC United first team that it seemed like they weren't fully willing to commit to, okay, go play for the kickers for a, for a whole season. So he's in this weird in-between space. And I think that sort of, to me, that sums up the relationship between the two teams uh, quite well. Is that Some players get fully committed to the kickers for a season. Uh, like Chris Durkin last season was, even though he went away with the U17s, when he was available, he was always available for the Richmond kickers, whereas other players are more sort of in and, in and out. Right, so that shows even in the USL you can lose players to national team duty. Uh, yeah, exactly. In a situation yeah. like that. And so uh, what were your first impressions of uh, – when you first got here, what were your impressions of quality of play, and uh, how has that changed in the last ten years? Um, I so I had heard from some people that the quality of play was really poor, so I was pleasantly surprised when I when I went to see it. So I think some people set the bar low for me because there's still a lot of you know Euro snobbery, and there was even more back in uh, 2005. So it was a pleasant right. surprise to see the uh, the standard of play. Uh, back in 2005. Weirdly, I would say that the kickers' standard has stayed about the same, but the standard of teams around them has improved, which has been sort of detrimental to the kickers' results. So it's been enjoyable to watch some really quality players come and play against Richmond in the USL, but it's made things a lot harder on the uh, the 11 guys on the field for the kickers. Well, who are the best teams that that you've seen uh, come in? Well, for example, um, I remember last year or the year before, New York Red Bulls 2 came down, and they had Derek Etienne Jr., and they had Tyler Adams, and a few other guys that have since graduated <laughs> to the Red Bulls first team. But you can imagine that quality of player. I mean, they are now both internationals, right? Etienne's played for Haiti, and Tyler Adams is pretty much a regular for the U.S. men's national team midfield at this point. Um, so th- that's the type of quality of player that would not have been here um, in 2005. So on the whole, I mean, I think in the abstract, people discuss the reserve teams and think that, uh, oh, well, this is this is a bad thing, it, it, or it looks weird, and they can't really comprehend it. But uh, as someone who sees the kickers and gets to see these these teams come in, would you view it as a net positive? I think I do. Yeah, I mean, for one thing, it's given the league some stability right like it hasn't changed its name from usl pro or usl d1 d2 or anything in the last few years mm-hmm. it seems like they've really settled on a settled on a system and a setup um, which is they've just accepted that we are going to be bolstered by these um mls2 teams and i will say the league doesn't like it when you call them reserve teams because they don't want the league usl to be viewed um as a reserve league which i think is fair because they are um independent teams in in many ways right like like Atlanta United too even though they've got those uh, homegrown players like Andrew Carlton and Chris Goslin and George Bello they also have some players who are specifically contracted to Atlanta United too they're not Atlanta United players uh, senior team players in in any way so um, I I kind of understand that Um, but to me it's made it more exciting like it's made me excited to go see some of the stars of tomorrow you can see these 17 18 year old guys who first of all were struggled to find anywhere to play previous to, especially when the actual MLS Reserve League disappeared and there was no uh, relationship mm-hmm. with the USL. Those guys were just in the wilderness, right? So I have a positive feeling just about what it means in terms of development of giving guys like Andrew Carlton a competitive environment to play in. And is, do home crowds sort of get a little bit more amped up when it's Atlanta United 2 coming into town as opposed to uh, an, an independent team coming in? Um, I think it depends. So if it's the Charleston Battery, uh, 
right. uh, the fans will get amped up because there's that somewhat historic rivalry where they're the two teams that have been around the longest in USL. So there's a history there and so, geographic proximity or what passes for it in the, the gigantic country of the United States. Right? <laughs> Charleston's like six hours south of it. Um, right. But then weirdly, there's a lot of Richmond Kickers fans, especially especially in Section O, which is the sort of rowdiest, liveliest um, section um, at City Stadium. If you see any red smoke, it'll be from the Red Army, the Richmond Kickers fans. A lot of those guys in the past have been DC United fans. They've been part of Barra Brava. Um, and so the the sort of animosity that they feel towards the New York Red Bulls as part of that DC United New York Red Bulls um, rivalry gets uh, what's the word uh, sort of transferred down to the DC United sorry to the Richmond Kickers New York Red Bulls two rivalry. So there is a bit of a, a transfer hmm. of the old rivalries um, into the into the current setup. As for Atlanta United two, they haven't been here yet, um, so we'll find out when they get here. Right, the kickers and the battery. I can remember from the mid '90s, uh, still, yeah. uh, still being around. Uh, two, uh, two of the longest-standing clubs in in the U.S. And so, how how is the facility these days? I, I last went. To, I can't remember when I last went to a kickers game. It's maybe ten years ago for an Open Cup game. And I don't think that they were in the current stadium now, or it, or it had not yet been renovated. Uh, what's your what's your impression of that stadium now? So it's an old stadium, right? It's called City Stadium. It's downtown. It's For me, it's uh, literally a 10-minute walk from my house, or um, I've timed it a, a four-minute bike ride is how I get there. Um, <laughs> uh, so it, I think it was built in like 1920-something. I, I, wish I'd, I wish I'd researched this before I talked to you, but, you know, it's an old, old stadium. Uh, it's a big concrete bowl-type stadium. There's one big side where the bleachers are. Um, no fans go over there because it's not very well-maintained. Uh, they let the broadcast crew go over there, and we have to sort of um, cross our fingers and hope everything goes goes right for us. Um, <laughs> there, there is a plan in place whereby the, the city owns the stadium. The kickers do not own the stadium. But they've right. reached a deal where the kickers have a long-term lease on the stadium for, you know, for almost nothing. Um, in, in exchange for the long-term lease, the kickers organization is going to put some money in um, over the course of, I think, uh, decades they're going to put a lot of money into renovating the stadium and it's not going to suddenly look like the camp now but they are going to sort of um you know upgrade some of the seating uh upgrade the concourse add add some new stands add some new uh like restaurants and facilities like that so there's a lot there's going to be a lot of slow money slowly poured in to upgrade the facilities the one thing as well is the field the actual the grass field is absolutely beautiful it is almost perfect well, that's good. And, and now the there since the NASL has splintered and uh, started, uh, they, they they're not going away very quietly. Uh, one of the criticisms that they've lobbed is they say that USL players are all grossly underpaid. Uh, do you get that sense with the kickers that, that these players are unable to make ends meet, or are they all you know? Uh, working at sports bars in the afternoon and at night to make ends meet? Or what's your impression of, of how that goes with the kickers? So I genuinely don't know any hard numbers. Um, right. I, I'll tell you, the kickers players aren't driving around in Lamborghinis. Um, sure. But they also, <laughs> they some of them are working second jobs, but those second jobs are within the organization, right? So you're not going to see a kickers player um you know, tending bar, but you will see them coaching um, a kicker's 
you suck a team. And I think that's kind of the 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 genius or the did you say that you used the word stable at the start of this interview, right? To describe the kickers. Right. I think part of the reason they're so stable is that the youth soccer organization is so established and it provides an avenue for the pro players to make extra money and to maybe have a career beyond their playing days um, coaching the, the various youth soccer teams of the Richmond Kickers organization. And for those who don't, who live outside the area and don't know, it is a massive youth soccer organization. And I mean, there are two of them in Richmond because you also have the Richmond Strikers, uh, yeah. but those are both very big clubs um, to the point where, I mean, there's also, there's also FC Richmond is a, um, a third youth team. And they do really well as well. They have, um, they had Nick Tatagui, whose name I should really know how to pronounce, um, but he's from mm-hmm. the area and he's now 19-year-old with Schalke's U19s. So the FC Richmond are a youth club producing some really good players. They produced my co-host um, Taylor Rockwell. So any skills he's got, he can attribute to FC Richmond. Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> and uh, so you have three fairly good-sized clubs there. I mean, the, the kickers and the strikers, I mean, if you just look up how many teams they have, they, do, yeah. they have just um, at all levels. Uh, I mean, yep. um, and that includes a partnership to have a, a development academy uh, club as well. Um, I believe that's Richmond United, isn't it? Yeah, so Richmond United, um, I believe it's from U16 to U18, um, is not pay-to-play. It's free-to-play. And, yeah, it's a partnership between the Richmond Strikers um, and the the Richmond Kickers, which is – I love it because it's the um, the old – it's the actual definition of the word United is when, you know, two teams used to come together. That's why there's so many in England, there's so many teams called United. It's because two teams would eventually decide to merge to, to pull their resources. Um, right. so I really like the little, the little nod to the actual use of the word United. And it just makes sense, right? Just, I think there's so much in um, American soccer of different organizations fighting to get their piece of the pie. And you could even say NESL versus USL is and was a similar situation. So anytime two organizations say, hey, we'll all be better off if we just uh, get together um, and uh, and pull our resources and make the best of it and that's best for everybody, I'm 100% in, in for that. Um, I should also mention, you asked about facilities earlier, right? City Stadium. Um, right. The Richmond Kickers actually, even though the stadium is old but is being upgraded, they also built um, about 15 minutes away from downtown. It's technically in the county because Richmond is uh, an independent city surrounded by counties. Um, they built a facility called Ucrop Park. I don't know if you're familiar with this, um, but it's a gigantic soccer complex with I don't know how many fields, but you can't stand in one place and count them all. If that if that gives you an impression of how big it is, with right. grass fields, artificial turf fields, floodlights, and like really top end uh, sports facilities. So that is where the team uh, practices, and it's where the team will have some preseason friendlies, and it's where a lot of the youth teams will do um, all their um, all their uh, training and games. So they've got really good facilities to work with there. And it's all named after the the Ucrop family, which has been linked with the kickers. For, I, Rob played in the mid '90s. Yes, and uh, I believe is his father still running the club, or is it? Um... No. So technically, or actually, the Richmond Kickers are owned by their own youth organization. Uh, the Richmond Kickers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote this down because I never actually knew it. The Richmond Kickers Youth Soccer Club is the the very literal name of it, which is a 501c3 uh, non-profit. And the president of the Richmond Kickers Youth Soccer Club is Rob Ucrop. 
um, who's you know kind of a local legend for soccer. He played for the Kickers for years and years. Scored I think yeah. ten million ten million goals, something um, along those lines. Um, well, he also played the Dynamo. Yeah, I think seven million against the Dynamo. Yeah, he also played in MLS for New England. I think he scored in one of the first seasons in Major League Soccer. He played U23s. So he's a yeah, very uh, talented soccer player, but also super committed to youth soccer and pro soccer in Richmond, Virginia. And I think it's it's really important to to. Uh, I actually don't know if this is the case in in with other USL teams, but the idea of the kickers being a non-profit means no one is in it to make money beyond people getting paid a salary and the club continuing to exist and to thrive. And I think that might be the secret of how Richmond Kickers have managed to be around for so long and never have any of the the financial wobbles or worries that other teams uh, that you've seen come and go in the USL that, that they have had. Yeah, I should point out one quick thing. Robert Ukrop, I will double-check this, but I believe this is true. Uh, I saw a game in uh, Hampton Roads, Virginia, when Hampton Roads had its, had its team and uh, Ucrop scored a fantastic goal. Uh, the goalkeeper against whom he scored was one Darth Lagerway. Uh, <laughs> has gone to be the general manager of uh, Real Salt Lake and, now, and then Seattle and rumored to be in line for a U.S. job. So uh, I will have to double-check with my fellow Duke grad on <laughs> Darth Lagerway on, <laughs> on that. Um, but, yeah, that's that's an example of – well, in the mid-'90s, uh, when there were only – well, first of all, there was no MLS, and then when MLS came in, there were only 10 teams. So there was still a lot of talent in the U.S. to to play for all these teams. These were, these were fantastic teams. Uh, so uh, so with the kickers, and it's funny because there are – you see so many pro teams that are trying to work their way downward. I mean, all the MLS clubs are now have formed academies. In some cases, they're trying to reach down beyond the academy, right? They they're, might have a U12 team or a, U, uh, a U10 program of some kind. Um, and then, but you don't see many youth soccer clubs that have a pro team. And it, it seems like such an obvious business model uh, to make that work because you can you can put a lot of these players. I think um, several of them are coaching coaching in in the um, in the youth organization. Why do you suppose more people, more clubs, don't copy the kickers model in the U.S.? My guess would be that starting a pro team is a big upfront investment. So it may be that a lot of youth soccer clubs look at it and think. We could spend this money on, you know, making sure what we're doing right now is well funded, or we can take this big gamble on launching a pro team, right? Then you've got to find a stadium, you've got to find new staff and players and, and all that stuff. Um, is, is it St. Louis, I believe? Um, oh, I, I wish I knew this. There's a team, a development academy, and a USL team essentially grew out of it. Um, so that they have a link between the academy and the pro team in that way. But, for, yeah, for the most part, teams don't do it. Um, and in Richmond, I can say it's a great it's a great setup because each thing feeds the other, right? Like the, uh, the, the existence of the pro team gives um, legitimacy and exposure and a higher profile to all the youth teams, and it gives you experienced pro soccer players and experienced coaches to go and coach those teams, so it really raises the standard and the visibility. Um, and then on the flip side, the existence of the, the youth program gives extra visibility and community outreach to the kickers protein. So each thing feeds the other. Um, and you can really, you can start playing for what they call the little kickers, 
when you're sort of uh, just a tiny, tiny uh, kid. You can go all the way up through. Even if you're not an elite player, you can still play at various age groups. And then you can, as part of that, you'll maybe go and see some games. So you can really get pulled into soccer through the Richmond Kickers and go from playing as a little kid all the way to watching the, the pro team. And it's a whole connected ecosystem. And they're even, the Kickers even have really good roots in sort of the adult amateur soccer league that I play in. There's sort of 100 teams here just in um, the city of Richmond. And the kickers do things like they'll sometimes sponsor the um, jerseys or they don't do it anymore, but they used to handle some of the administration for player registration. So they really, it, it seems, I don't know if this is in their mission statement, but it seems they're just committed to the idea of soccer in Richmond, Virginia. And so as, as a result, whereas sometimes a lot of proteins, uh, even at the MLS level, you might people say, "Oh, I walk around downtown and no one knows who the San Jose Earthquakes are, no one knows who DC United is, and so forth." It's, mm-hmm. In Richmond, do you get the sense that people know who the kickers are because they either know the pro team or their kids play for them or against them? Yeah, I think the sort of the size of the team also makes them very approachable, right? Like I said, the, mm-hmm. the players aren't going around in Lamborghinis and you, you don't see them. Like you will sometimes just, you know, see players in a restaurant. Cause it's still, I mean, Richmond's a, a city, but it's still not a gigantic city. So if you're willing to be out in the community, you can have a lot of impact very quickly. So one thing you did mention uh, a little bit earlier was the uh, the hot the hot button or the third rail of U.S. soccer, which is promotion and relegation. And, and <laughs> I did have a conversation with someone from the Kickers maybe 10 years ago. I asked, um, I was talking with them about the club and and said, you know, so what would it mean to you if you ever had promotion and relegation? And the and the guy who who was English. Um, said, oh, no, never happened here. Uh, do you get the sense that the kicker – well, tell you what, what, what do you think would happen with the kickers if all of a sudden, you know, Rocco Camiso gets his way and pro leads are required to be uh, doing pro rel by 2020 or 2019? Uh, my, fee, my guess, based on the current uh, standard of the kickers versus standard of opposition – is that if there was relegation to a D3, the kickers would be fighting relegation to D3. So last season, they finished second bottom of the USL Eastern Conference. Um, mm-hmm. If the bottom two went down, they would have been going down to uh, to Division 3. And we may, I mean, Major League Soccer is the the big close shop, right? The big sort of white whale in terms of trying to, <laughs> trying to get some sort of promotion <laughs> relegation going. There, I mean, there is a USL D3 starting in 2019. Um, uh, th- that's the plan anyway, right? And the long-term right. plan seems to be a possible promotion relegation between USL and USL D3. So I can see that ha- possibly happening for, for the Richmond Kickers. And it could be, unless there's some gigantic investment, it could be that that's a better setup for them. And provided they can stay in business in D3, there's no reason to me why that would um, hurt the Richmond Kickers. And I would personally, as a fan of the team, enjoy fighting relegation, maybe getting relegated, and then fighting to get back up. It would add drama and narrative to every single season. Now, on the on the flip side of that, suppose the Kickers suddenly caught fire or they got a, a bunch of really good players that once a, um, maybe a golden generation comes through the academy. Yeah. And then they qualify to be promoted. 
would they be able to to handle that level? On, um, in any sense, especially depend, logistical. It would depend on the terms, right? Like, because I could see promotion relegation happening in the United States, where you get promoted, but you had to meet, meet certain standards to go into the higher division. Um, so I could right. see that being a problem, and the kickers may look at it and say, "Hey, we're not willing to spend all this money on stadium upgrades just to spend what could be one year in the top flight." I could 100% see that. Um, mm-hmm. At the same time, part of the so part of the problem in the past has been that the kickers struggled with travel. So I remember in my time here, I may have the date wrong, but I think 2009, the kickers made it to the USL Championship. And they played Seattle away in the final, which is almost as far as you can go from Richmond all the way to the Pacific Northwest. We're in the we're in the southeast, and it was a Quite big far. thing to get the entire team and staff um, out to the Pacific Northwest to to play that game. Obviously, they went, they lost on penalty kicks, but you know they just somebody put the money up or they however they financed it, they managed to do it. But I know it was a big deal to do. So the only way it would work for the kickers is if you went into the top flight and essentially travel and expenses were covered by the league. Right, because at your current level, there is a big push to keep things regional. In fact, I just heard an interview with Jake Edwards um, while well, he was on uh, Sirius XM the day before we were recording this, but I listened to it this morning, and and he said that they're hoping to have uh, three regional conferences in Division Two pretty soon. So that seems like a fairly big deal to be able to keep those those costs down and it, it makes me wonder why the obsession with a national trophy you know what, what does it really mean to be the usl champion as opposed to the usl east champion is that you know does that sort of thing did did, did the kickers gain a lot by being in that championship game I mean, if they'd won it, then they would say they gained a lot because they'd, they'd have the trophy to talk about and to show, right? So, um, mm-hmm. in in that sense, that that I could see how it's worth it to have a national championship. But I, I mean, I prefer the idea of um, regionalized divisional play, whether it's east, central, west, or even in the future if it's northeast, southeast, you know, north central, south central, northwest, southwest, just to make it easier for as many teams as possible to. Face uh, a lower barrier to entry in terms of logistics, um, but, but then maybe if just if the league took some revenue, if possible, and funded the travel for the eventual national championship games, if it's just a couple games that each team has to play to play for the national championship, I think that adds a, a level of um, uh, like next level of competition and interest that I think is worth doing. If it's just a short term like tournament playoff type thing. It seems like it sometimes seems like we're going to take a, a step in that direction, and sometimes it, it just really doesn't. Um, so, uh, but also the regional play would make more sense for away fans as well, wouldn't it? Because uh, how often do kickers fans uh, get to travel to an away game? There is a select group that goes to every game, but it's very select. <laughs> I mean, I'll say I have <laughs> never seen. The Richmond Kickers play away. I've seen the Richmond Kickers play at home more times than I can count. I've never been to an away game because away games are so far away. As you said, like Charleston is the regional rivalry, but it's you know it's it's two states away. You've got to go you've got to go south in Virginia. You've got to go all the way through North Carolina, and then you've got to go through South Carolina until you get to to Charleston. So that is not that is not close by. Right, and and 
going up to New York to see them play Red Bulls too uh, seems very difficult, and so so would Atlanta trip. Yeah. So, um, I guess in, in a hope, way, actually, the the best hope for an actual regional rivalry will be if DC United uh, do have their own USL team, which the rumor has been Loudon, Loudon County. Um, yeah. Uh, so if there's a Loudon, I'm sure you're aware of this being in the region, right? So that would be an mm-hmm. actual regional rivalry that I think could be could be quite interesting. Right, that would be about a two-hour drive for you. So yeah, so yeah, you could you certainly do that. Or, or seven so, hours, depending on what's happening. <laughs> Ninety-five, you never know. When I went down to um, <laughs> the the Open Cup game, I covered, I believe it was actually the Richmond Kickers Future. They had, they had a, a an affiliate team in the PDL. Dominic Orduro uh, was oh, playing wow. for the team at that point, and they were playing the uh, Baltimore Colts, um, which. We all know it's the former name of the NFL team, but it was mm-hmm. there was a soccer team called Baltimore Colts, and the Colts players were scrambling to get down there on 95 because they all worked. And uh, so they uh, a couple of guys showed up right at kickoff and started warming up, and they put them in in about the 25th minute. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that that's uh, 95 is uh, it, it, it's a clogged artery in the uh, U.S. Uh, traffic circulation map. Uh, I, I think so, we should have um, a, a special lane for soccer players so they can get to games easily. For soccer players and fans, there should be a special lane on 95. That sounds good. They could open up the hot <laughs> lanes and uh, and say, and uh, you could set it to uh, I'm either paying or I have three people in the car or soccer. And that that yeah that works. You call it you, you show, call it you show your um, yeah. show your show your match ticket and they they let you go. They should let you go down the express lane. Right. So, yeah, right now it's called a hot lane for high occupancy toll. You could make it a hot lane, high occupancy toll soccer. Yeah, there you I, go. I think. Okay, so we need to contact the uh, Virginia Department of Transportation about this. I think this is a winning <laughs> idea. All right. So, so to close with, then, just um, and obviously you talk about this every week on the show, but the uh, state of U.S. soccer in general. Um, they're holding a World Cup that, you know, frankly, I don't think any of us wanted to go to anyway, because it sounds like it's going to be a really ugly place to be uh, in Russia mm-hmm. this summer. Um, and, you know, of all the World Cups to miss, I think this might be the best one to miss. But it's still kind of a black mark on uh, where U.S. soccer stands right now. And so just a general perspective uh, from from where you are having, you know, come here from from England, but then – being here long enough to understand uh, the culture here and what progress we have and have not made. What are your general thoughts on the state of U.S. soccer right now? The one thing I'd say is missing the World Cup is obviously super painful and will affect in some way the long-term growth. Because I hear from so many people who, for example, listen to our show and started watching soccer because of the 2010 or the 2014 or the 2002 World Cup. Mm -hmm. Um, so it really is a, a multiplier in terms of gaining fans for the sport. But at the same time, coming from England, my perspective is I've seen England miss World Cups before, and you just have to wait till the next one. You know what I mean? Like England <laughs> missed, missed out on qualifying for the 94 World Cup, and everyone was really disappointed. But, you know, the world kept turning, and then there was a, there was a European Championship two years after that that England hosted, and they made the semi-final. So I, I think... I think in some ways it can people can overreact to missing the World Cup um, when, you know, like if, 
if Omar Gonzalez, like, if it had taken a different angle when it bounced off of him, um, or if that strike from, I believe the player's name was Jones, that long-range strike that went past Tim Howard, there is a certain flukiness to the U.S. missing the World Cup, and they could have been just as bad throughout the entire qualification. Throughout the entire hex, they could have been just as bad and still accidentally made it to the World Cup. And then everyone would be mm-hmm. sort of saying that everything was fine when it wasn't. So my my big argument is that despite the pain of missing it and the opportunity cost of missing it, maybe it is an opportunity for everybody to sort of step back, take a look, reset, and it might actually have a long-term upside um, if it motivates people to think differently or think outside the box about the way U.S. soccer is run. And I know people weren't happy, um, like revolutionary people weren't happy with how the election happened, and maybe people aren't happy that Carlos Cordero hasn't burned everything down and started building it up again. Um, but it's, there's definitely been a big change. Even if you just look at the, the players selected for recent, uh, recent uh, U.S. friendlies, there is, it is the beginning of something new. So I think it's time to invest in that and support that. It's funny, missing the World Cup in 1994 didn't seem to hurt uh, England's uh, professional league, uh, which yeah. had... <laughs> Yeah, which had just uh, had just I don't want to say just started, but uh, the the Premier League era had just started. Because yeah, ninety two Premier League started, so yeah, it was only it was just getting going. I remember reading about that as uh, I was working in a place that had English newspapers, and I would read about it and go, "What what exactly are they talking about? Starting this new, you know, they're just going to call it the Premier League? Well, so what? It's still Division One, and little did I realize." Uh, how much the uh, the the TV money that would come in as a result of that um, would change, yeah. and of course the the Boston ruling around the same time changed everything as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so is there anything new that we should know about with the Total Soccer Show, or anything else that you and Taylor are doing that uh, we should know? This is the the plug away segment of the podcast. Uh, <laughs> we get to let us know <laughs> let, let us know um, what you're up to and where we can find you. So the big thing now for the Total Soccer Show is we're starting to get ready for the World Cup. We had a sort of um, uh, all hands, so that means just the two of us, uh, business meeting <laughs> last week where we sort of planned out exactly what we're going to do with our World Cup previews. And we came up with some great ideas, we think, for preview content as we get ready for the World Cup. And we're going to commit to previewing and reviewing every single game um, every single day. So we're going to be really busy in June and July, and we're super, super excited about it. That's like the sort of thing I I, I used to do, uh, especially my USA Today days. I was um, doing a photo gallery of most games, telling the story of the game and so forth, and doing all sorts of things. And and uh, now I'm happy to leave that to people who are younger than I am. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we, will, we will certainly check out the podcast. And uh, really appreciate it. And best of luck to the show down the road. Thanks, Bo. And thanks for having me on. So there you have it. Um, as far as updates go, can't really tell you. I do think I'll have more podcasts in the next couple of weeks. It's just been one of those things I've been working on a project for 442 that I hope is up pretty soon. And then podcasts coming up in the next couple of weeks. So keep an eye, rantingsoccerdad.com. Rant on! Rant on!